Hello everybody, this is Dan Trotter, Pretty Good Bible Studies. I am in Luke chapter 20. I'm going to cover the first 19 verses of Luke 20. We're going to cover the first part of Tuesday of Passion Week when the Jewish leaders question Jesus' authority. And then Jesus gives them three parables in return, all of which have the common theme of God's going to take your kingdom away from you, Jewish leaders, my friends. Only one of those parables is in Luke 20, the parable of the vineyard. There are parallel passages in Mark and in Matthew. Matthew has two other parables, the parable of the two sons and the parable of the wedding banquet, which have the same theme of the kingdom being taken away from the Jewish leaders. We won't cover those because I've already done that in Matthew. Now, I've already covered these, these events of Tuesday of Passion Week in Mark, and so I'm going to splice in two audios from Mark. The first audio is where Jesus confronts the religious leaders and they question his authority, and that splice begins now. Hello, everybody. This is Dan Trotter, Pretty Good Bible Studies. I'm taking up Mark chapter 11, verses 27 through 33. The end of the chapter, this is the story of Jesus coming into Jerusalem on Passion Week, on Tuesday of Passion Week. He's already examined the cursed fig tree on the way in from the Mount of Olives. He gets in, and the Pharisees, the Sadducees, the scribes, the ruling elders of the people in the Sanhedrin, they all challenge Jesus and say, who are you to be doing all these things? So Tuesday is debate day on Passion Week. As Jesus debates the Pharisees and he whips them. He makes them look like fools. I love, I love Tuesday of Passion Week. And then Tuesday evening when he goes back to the Mount of Olives, he's going to give the disciples the Olivet Discourse. So that's the context. We have two parallel passages, Matthew 21, verses 21 through 27. And we have Luke chapter 21 through 8. I'm going to go through Luke real quick, pick up a few little details, and then there's nothing more to add from Luke. So... It says that, well, let me, let me read the passage first in Mark 11, then I'll go to Luke. Mark 11, 27 through 33. They came again to Jerusalem, that's Jesus and his disciples, as he was walking in the temple complex, and this is in the court of the Gentiles on the eastern side there, on that colonnade there, the portico. The chief priests, the scribes, and the elders came and asked him, by what authority are you doing these things? Who gave you authority to do these things? Jesus said to them, I will ask you one question, then answer me, and I will tell you by what authority I am doing these things. Was John's baptism from heaven or from men? Answer me. They began to argue among themselves. If we say from heaven, he will say, then why didn't you believe him? But if we say from men, they were afraid of the crowd because everyone thought that John was a genuine prophet. So they answered Jesus, we don't know. And Jesus said to them, neither will I tell you by what authority I do these things. Now we're going to get into Jesus's what the trap was that the Pharisees and, and the relig religious authorities were trying to set for Jesus. We're going to see how he got out of the trap, and then we're going to see how he trapped them. But first, let's look through the parallel passages, pick up some minor points, get them out of the way. Luke 20, verse 1, it says that Jesus was preaching the gospel in the temple. And I thought that was interesting because it shows, I always think of the gospel as what was preached after Pentecost. But here, it, the scripture says that the gospel was preached in the temple, which the gospel was preached, which was before Pentecost, before Jesus had even died. Luke adds the fact, well, Mark and Luke both have the fact that the scribes were part of the the uh, inquisitorial party that was coming up on Jesus to challenge him. Mark Matthew leaves that out. Let's talk real quick about the chief priests, the scribes, and the elders. The chief priests 
are the religious authorities. The scribes are the scholastic authorities, and the elders are the political authorities. Now, those three categories don't have sharp edges. Sometimes they blur into one another. For example, you might have a scribe who might be on the Sanhedrin, the political authority, for example. And to make this even more complicated, the Pharisees and the Sadducees were two religious schools. They weren't really official. That was just schools of thought. And some Pharisees could be scribes and some not might not be scribes. A Pharisee could be on the on the Sanhedrin, on, in the political council. A Sadducee, I guess, could be a scribe too. But in general, the, the priestly function was carried out by Sadducees who tended to be pro-Roman, anti-revolution, and who also had some doctrinal differences with the Pharisees who tended to mostly make up the scribal party. Sadducees didn't believe in the resurrection of the dead and they only took the Torah, the first, the Pentateuch, to be authoritative. All right. But at any rate, just to, to not get into the weeds about that, I've always been fascinated by the differences, but I know a lot of people don't care. So we'll just call them the religious big shots, the, uh, the establishment all joined together to come after Jesus. Now, I'm going to give you Robertson's quotes on this passage because I think it will set the context very well. He says this, Jesus bases his human authority on John the Baptist, his forerunner who baptized him, and demands the Sanhedrin's opinion of the baptism of John. This pertinent counter-question paralyzes the Jewish leaders, and Jesus drives his argument home by three parables. Now, these three parables are going to be in the next chapter in Mark, and so we'll, uh, one of them will be in the next chapter in Mark, and then the synoptics will have the other two. We'll do that in the next audio. The three parables are the parable of the two sons, parable of the wicked husbandman, and parable of the marriage feast of the king's son. All three of those parables have one thing in common. The kingdom's going to be taken away from the Jews. <laughs> and their city's going to be burnt down, one of the parables says, which happened in AD 70. So Jesus is getting warmed up here. Robertson in another quote says this, It was very common to test a rabbi with hard questions. See this continued in the following sections. We'll see after Jesus whops them with those three parables, then... The Pharisees and Sadducees come right back at him. Whose authority do you pay taxes? Do, you, do, your, do your disciples pay taxes? The Sadducees say, do you believe in the resurrection of the dead? And so there's some more testing going on on Tuesday, but we'll take that up even later. In like matter, Robertson continues, the fourth gospel gave us much animated dialogue between Jesus and the Jews at Jerusalem in chapters 5, 7, and 10. We'll, we'll take that up when we get to the gospel of John. The Sanhedrin were within their rights, the ruling council, the Sanhedrin, were within their rights in challenging the ecclesiastical and scholastic scribal standing of Jesus. He did not dodge in his answer. No, he did not. Robertson in another quote says this, On this last day of Christ's public ministry, this is Tuesday, Jesus cleansed the temple on Monday. Well, he made the triumphal entry on Palm Sunday. The next day on Monday, he cleansed the temple. On Tuesday, he comes in here and debates all day with the Pharisees. Wednesday, he takes a day off. On Tuesday night, I left that out. He had, gave the Olivet Discourse to his disciples back on Mount, Mount of Olives. Then Wednesday, he takes the day off. Thursday, he comes in and celebrates the Passover that night. And then he's arrested early Friday morning and killed Friday afternoon. So the reason that Robertson says this is the last day of Christ's public ministry is because Tuesday night it was with the disciples with Olivet Discourse, and then Thursday came in secretly to take the Passover because they were out to kill him. He had to be secretly in. So this is it. This is the last day that Jesus publicly taught the people. 
All right, so the first attempt of the Sadducees to break the power of Jesus fails miserably, Robertson continues, but it is followed by a series of other efforts to entrap Jesus and so turn the crowd against him. The three parables, which we're going to take up next audio, the three parables leave the rulers exposed by Jesus and they keenly feel the denunciation of the reply of Jesus. So Tuesday of Passion Week, folks, this is, this is a great time here as we see our Lord taking authority over religious bull hockey. All right, so now let's go through Mark 11:27 through 33 and point out a few things and, and examine the, the passage more closely. All right, I'm going to read from Matthew 21, 23 through 27 because there is almost absolutely no difference between Mark, not any that I can tell, and I have most of my notes in Matthew here, so we'll, we'll, we'll go through Matthew here. When he, answered, when he entered the temple complex, the chief priests and the elders of the people came to him as he was teaching and said, by what authority are you doing these things? So the whole question here is authority, authority. Who has authority? They ask him, by what authority do you do these things? What things were they referring to? Well, the day before on Monday, Jesus had driven out the buyers and the sellers from the, of the sacrificial animals from the temple area and overturned the tables of the money chambers and during his ministry, he had restored sight to the blind, he had caused the lame to walk, and he preached the kingdom of God. You know, typical messianic type things. And the blind fools that were in charge of Jerusalem, they're looking for whose authority did he do these things? Why couldn't they figure out, you know, he healed the blind. He made the deaf and dumb see. He made the lame walk, and you worried about whose authority was it? Now, note that they had also asked the same thing of John the Baptist, and Jesus is going to use John the Baptist as a lever in order to pry himself out of his difficulty from the rabbi's charge. Here's what the rabbis had asked John the Baptist. Let's read from John chapter 1, verses 19 through 25. This is John's testimony when the Jews from Jerusalem sent priests and Levites to ask him, who are you? See, the religious authorities come in and ask who's the scribe. They do, that was their job. They were supposed to do that, actually. What they weren't supposed to do is to ignore the evidence that's right in front of their eyes. Verse 20, he, John the Baptist, did not refuse to answer, but he declared, I am not the Messiah. What then, they asked him, are you Elijah? I am not, he said. Are you the prophet? That's Deuteronomy 18:15, the prophet predicted by Moses. Are you the prophet? No, he answered. Who are you then, they asked. We need to give an answer to those who sent us. So, so this is the typical interrogation that goes uh, when you try to be a prophet or a rabbi, especially if you try to be the Messiah. You're going to get interrogated by the rabbis, but that was the job. Verse, we'll skip down to verse 24 in John 1. Now, they had been sent from the Pharisees. So they asked him, why then do you baptize if you aren't the Messiah or Elijah or the prophet? So you see, question after question after question after question. So let's summarize the possible motives of the Jewish leaders. I, I'm going to use an alliteration here. They were worried about their power, their prophets, and their place. Power, prophets, and place. They were worried about their authority, as I just said. They asked, by what authority do you do these things? Well, what if the people start giving authority to Jesus instead of them? Then they will no longer be the official interpreters of the law. They will not be the ones who will be running the temple. How about their prophets? Well, he ran the money changers out of the temple, and the Sadducees were making some good shekels off of that trade, and he just destroyed it. But even worse than all of that is they're going to lose their place because if Jesus ends up being a Messiah, he's going to start a political upheaval that's going to bring the Romans in and they're going to take the authority away from the Sanhedrin. 
The Sanhedrin had the right to try all religious cases. Had, had, they even had civil authority over all legal of cases except for capital punishment. And even with capital punishment, there was one exception for that. I forgot what it was. But basically, they had a lot of authority from the Romans, and they were scared they were going to lose it. Power, profits, and place. I would submit to you that, that when you see a church struggle, that's what it's usually over. Who's in charge here? Instead of listening to the Bible, the scriptures, which shows that no, there was never one man in charge of a church. Never. I just heard of a story where a, a pastor just got himself a good book deal from University Press, no less. And so he has to leave. His elders have to run his church. He comes back. He doesn't like the way they do things, so he fires them all, gets new leadership. Then one of the new elders talks to another elder about a problem in the church, not, not concerning the pastor, apparently. And so the pastor, in front of all the other elders, confronts this elder and says, you talked about a problem of the church to another elder without consulting me. Power, 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 power. Pastor Popes. The evangelical church is rife with this kind of nonsense. That's why I refuse to join the denomination. I'm just sick of it. I'm sick of all the power plays. Well, that's what the Sadducees were up to. Excuse me, the uh, Sanhedrin was up to was power. They wanted to keep their power. And money, I don't need to even say anything about money in the evangelical church. I can't make an analogy with the Pharisees concerned about the Roman Empire. I can't do that with American church today, but I've said enough about that. <sighs> let's go now. Let's point out now that the Pharisees were not, excuse me, the Pharisees and the Sanhedrin, the elders, the rules of the people, the Sadducees, all these people, the, the, the religious big shots, they were not concerned with the truth. All they were concerned about was themselves, their power, their place, their profits. That's all they cared about. They didn't bother, bother to examine the truth or the falsity of Jesus' doctrines. Did he quote the Old Testament scripture right? How about his miracles? Was there credible evidence that he actually did the miracles? Well, there was so much evidence they couldn't deny his miracles. So what did they say? Well, he did that from Beelzebul, from Satan. Total ignorance and stupidity and an evil heart. He, they knew he couldn't. They couldn't challenge Jesus on the truth of his doctrines, his teaching, or his miracles, because he'd already whipped them up on that. He'd already beat them already that. So they accused him of doing miracles by the devil. When they did that, Jesus just says, oh, really, a kingdom divided against itself is going to fall? How can you be so stupid, Pharisees? And he, he would shut them up with unanswerable questions. How do you have authority to heal this man on the Sabbath? And he says... Hey, what's easier to say your no? How do you have authority to say your sins are forgiven? You're committing blasphemy. And Jesus said, "What's easier to the man who's paralyzed? What's easier to say your sins are forgiven or to rise up and walk?" And then he makes the man wise up and walk. He he'd whipped the Pharisees. He had whipped the religious authorities pretty good already. So they had given up on challenging his teaching and challenging his miracles, challenging him on blasphemy. His they had given up on saying that his teaching was blasphemous or that his miracles didn't occur, or were, or were done from the devil, they'd given up on that, so now they're going to accuse him of sedition. That's why they asked him that thing about paying taxes to Rome later on on Tuesday. So first, before we get to that, though, let's talk about the nature of the trap they had set for Jesus by asking him about what authority do you do these things. If Jesus had said his authority was from God, they would accuse him of blasphemy. Now, I realize I just said they had given up on accusing him of blasphemy, I guess that was not exactly entirely accurate because apparently they, it doesn't say so, but it, it's implied or it's reasonable to assume that they were going to charge him immediately with blasphemy if he said his authority was from God. If Jesus had said his authority was from men, 
the leaders would say, no, it's not, because we haven't given you the authority. So they thought they had him. They were going to go after the blasphemy idea again. They've already tried this on him before, previously in Jesus' ministry. They're going to try it again. Jesus really lays it on them because he says, well, okay, you're asking me about that. Let me ask you a similar thing. The baptism of John, where was it, from heaven or from men? And, of course, the trap he got him in, if they said it was from men, they would say, well, uh, if they said the John's baptism is authority for men, the people knew that John the Baptist was very popular, and they would turn on the pe- on the crowd and on the Pharisees and the Sadducees, and they wouldn't have any power anymore. They wouldn't be able to stop Jesus. The crowd would get angry at the religious authorities, but if they said it was from God, then Jesus just said, well, why didn't you believe him? The Pharisees, of course, as we read in the passage here, I say the Pharisees, I mean the scribes, the Pharisees, the Sadducees, the political leaders, the religious big shots, they all realized the trap they were in because they discussed it amongst themselves and said, we, 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 we damned if we do and damned if we don't. We can't go left, we can't go right, he's got us. So what did they say? We don't know. We don't know what authority was come from. What a cowardly cop-out. Note how completely unintimidated Jesus was by his enemies. He completely exposes their iniquity and their hypocrisy right here. And as a result, they redouble their their desire to crucify him. Now, let's take a lesson from this. When somebody with malice aforethought, who has no desire for the truth, asks you a trick question, do you have the obligation to answer them? No, you do not. Now, this basically, if this was a philosophy class where everybody is trying to find the truth, or if it's a court of law where a court's trying to find the truth, you have to answer the question, or you're going to lose. Jesus here basically used a two-corque, a soldier old lady argument. He's saying, hey, you know, you, you want to know where I'm from? Well, well why don't you, you can't answer. I, I can't answer by what authority I came from without getting myself in trouble. Well, let's see you answer where... John the Baptist's authority came from without getting you in trouble. He didn't really answer the questions, what I'm saying. He, in law, what do they call it? You shift the attention of the, the focus of the jurors. You blow smoke. Well, you know, in a strict logical sense, that's not the way to answer a question. But Jesus is in a contest here for his life. And not only for his life, but for the truth and the integrity of the gospel. He is perfectly, it is perfectly all right for him to say, I'm not going to answer you. I'm not going to answer you. You're not going to charge me with blasphemy in front of all these people. And you're not going to deny my authority from, from God. You're not going to do that. But I'm not going to defend that. I'm going to attack. In other words, he went from the defense to the offense, shifted the focus of the crowd and of the Pharisees, and completely flummoxed them. And that's perfectly okay. You don't have to answer when you're in a kangaroo court. Remember, Jesus was in a kangaroo court in the next couple of days on Friday when they had him before the Sanhedrin, excuse me, the yeah, the rump Sanhedrin and the true Sanhedrin, and then he was before Herod and Pilate. He had to go through four separate hearings then. And sometimes he answered when he, he, was, he, answered when he was adjured. Which, but legally, according to the law, I adjure you, answer me. He had to answer, then he did. But other times when they answered him, and it was obviously they were just trying to set him up. And they weren't going to listen to him. He just shut up. He didn't say anything. They, what he's saying is, you don't deserve an answer because you're so bigoted. And that's basically what Jesus is saying to the Pharisees here. You don't deserve an answer because you're a bunch of damn murderers is what you are. A bunch of damnable murderers. Have you ever thought about how strange it is that it's a cuss, it's cussing to call, say somebody to say somebody is a damn murderer 
but it's perfectly all right to say they're a damnable murderer. I can't figure that out. But anyway, that's what they were. Jesus, by going to John the Baptist, Jesus is sort of battening on to John the Baptist's authority because he, Jesus knew that John the Baptist was popular. And, of course, John the Baptist is completely allied with Jesus because John the Baptist was preaching Jesus. And so John's situation was exactly the same as Jesus's. The leaders denied that his authority was from God. They did that to John the Baptist. They did that to Jesus. And then the leaders feared the people because the people knew that John the Baptist's authority was from God. Same situation with Jesus. So Jesus went to a good parallel situation and said, okay, you tell me, where's the authority come from? From heaven or from men? The Pharisees eventually say, we don't know. And that's when Jesus said, oh, you don't know? You ain't got the guts to answer me? Well, I ain't going to answer you. If you're a bunch of cowards, you don't deserve my answer. Here's what Jameson Fawcett and Brown says, quote, crooked, cringing hypocrites. No wonder Jesus gave you no answer. But what dignity and composure does our Lord display as he turns their question upon themselves? Now, actually, they were lying because they didn't know, or they thought they knew anyway. They thought they knew where Jesus' authority came from or John the Baptist's authority came from. They thought it came from man, but they didn't have the guts to say it. That's what they thought. They thought that John the Baptist was not a true prophet, but they could not say it in front of the crowd because they were cowards. If they'd have been truthful, they'd say, well, we know, but we're not going to tell you, Jesus. That, that would have been a way to hide it from the crowd and at least be honest about it, but been a little bit cowardly, but at least have been honest. But when they say, I don't know, that's total dishonest. They, they thought they knew. Jesus here is operating according to that great principle which he himself earlier taught, Matthew 7, 6. Don't give what is holy to dogs or toss your pearls before pigs. Or they will trample them with their feet, turn, and tear you to pieces. All right, that's it for the end of Matthew 11, verses 27 through 33. Jesus is challenged by the Pharisees and defends himself as a preface to giving three very anti-religious leadership parables he's going to give on this occasion. All right, I'm returning now from my splice that covered Mark chapter. 11 verses 27 through 33 which took up this issue of the religious authorities questioning Jesus' authority as a rabbi and now we're going to discuss the parable of the vineyard I'm going to splice in my discussion of that parable from uh, which I did on Mark 12 verses 1 through 12 and that splice begins now Hello, everybody. This is Dan Trotter, Pretty Good Bible Studies. I'm in Mark chapter 12. I'm going to do the first 12 verses in that chapter. We are at Tuesday of Passion Week. Jesus has just come in from Bethany. He examined the cursed fig tree on the way in. It was withered. He got into the city. The Pharisees and Sadducees and religious authorities immediately asked him where his authority was, testing him. Jesus went on the defense. He came up with a great defense. He says, well, tell me what authority John the Baptist came preaching, from men or from God? And they said, well, if we say from God, he'll say, Jesus will say, well, why didn't you believe him? If we say from men, they feared the people because the people thought John the Baptist was a prophet and they scared they would lose their power and Jesus would win. So Jesus, after having played defense, now goes on the offense and starts giving them three parables, all three of which are clearly aimed at the religious leaders of Israel. And the even though they were obtuse at first enough not to see it, Jesus explained it openly and clearly. You're going down, boys. You've had it. And so one of the parables that he brings home this awful truth with is the parable of the absentee landowner in the vineyard, vineyard, the wicked husbandman, as the King James has it. 
And the other two parables are not in Mark, so we won't cover them. So let's look at Mark 12, 1 through 12. We'll also look at Matthew 21, 33 through 46, the parallel passage, and Luke 29 through 18. I'm going to read the whole parable from Mark first. Then he began to speak them in parables. A man planted a vineyard, put a fence around it, dug out a pit for a wine press, and built a watchtower. Then he leased it to tenant farmers and went away. At harvest time, he sent a slave to the farmers to collect some of the fruit of the vineyard from the farmers. But they took him, beat him, and sent him away empty-handed. Again, he sent another slave to them, and they hit him on the head and treated him shamefully. Then he sent another, and they killed that one. He also sent many others. They beat some, and they killed some. He still had one to send, a beloved son. Finally, he sent them, sent him to them, saying, They will respect my son. But those tenant farmers said among themselves, This is the heir. Come, let's kill him, and the inheritance will be ours. So they seized him, killed him, and threw him out of the vineyard. Therefore, what will the owner of the vineyard do? He will come and destroy the farmers and give the vineyard to others. Haven't you read this scripture? The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This came from the Lord and is wonderful in your eyes. Because they knew he had said this parable against them, they were looking for a way to arrest him. But they were afraid of the crowd, so they left him and went away. All right, just at the very beginning, uh, to state the obvious, the vineyard was Israel. The tenant farmers were the current Jewish religious establishment. The political leaders, the Sanhedrin, the teaching leaders, the scholastic leaders, the Pharisees and the Sadducees. The owner of the vineyard is God, the absentee owner is God, and the son that the landowner sent to the vineyard to collect the fruit was Jesus. Now, this is very clear, so we'll just say this from the beginning. Now, in Mark, as we, we need to take care of some minor details here, it says that they, the tenant farmer sent another slave to the Excuse me, the landowner sent another slave to the tenant farmers, and they, the tenant farmers, hit him on the head. There's a question on how to translate that. I found five translations that translate they cast stones. They assaulted the slave with stones. And by the way, the slaves stand for the Old Testament prophets who had come bringing prophetic wisdom to the Israelites, and the, and the Israelites killed them. So, so there's a translation problem there. Uh, it doesn't really matter, hit him or stoned him. I will say this, though. There is a harmonization problem we need to take care of. In the three Gospels, there were three servants, three servants sent by the absentee landowner to the husbandman, to the tenant farmers. The In all three parallel Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, the first of these servants sent to the tenant farmers was beaten, so no harmonization problem there. But the second servant who was sent, in Mark, that second servant was wounded in the head. In, excuse me, in Matthew, that servant, second servant was killed. In Mark, the second servant was wounded in the head, and in Luke, the second servant was beaten. Well, how do you reconcile that? Well, it's quite easy. In Luke, the servant was beaten. How was he beaten? He was wounded in the head when he was beaten. That's in Mark. And then in Matthew, he died from his wounds. He was killed. It's not a problem. The th now, in Matthew, the third servant that was sent to the tenant farmers was stoned. 
and in Matthew he was killed, and in Luke he was wounded. Well, how do you reconcile that? Well, in Mark he was stoned. That stone caused him to be wounded, as recorded in Luke, and then he died from his wounds, as recorded in Matthew he was killed. And while we're at it, we ought to mention, too, that Luke does not mention that the absentee landowner sent other servants, but Matthew and Mark both say that other servants were sent to the tenant farmers, and those servants were beaten and killed. No harmonization problem there. All right, one other thing of significance uh, and that we're going to take out of Mark before we turn to Matthew is that Jesus says here in verse 9, Therefore, what will the owner of the vineyard do? He will come and destroy the farmers and give the vineyard to others. Well, the farmers who are going to be destroyed, of course, is the Jewish kingdom. And the vineyard was going to give him, be given to others. That is the Gentiles, as we'll see later. He explains that. So basically, Jesus is saying, your kingdom is getting ready to be taken away from you. Now, I want to focus on that word come. He will come and destroy the farmers. He will come and destroy the tenant farmers. He will come and destroy the rabbinic Jewish kingdom. Well, when did he do that? Eighty seventy, as Jesus is getting ready to say this very afternoon, this is Tuesday, Tuesday afternoon, he gave the Olivet Discourse. And in the Olivet Discourse, he talked all about his coming. Now, if you take the Olivet Discourse to be, which I think is very clear that it is meant to be, a prediction of his coming to destroy Jerusalem in AD 70, then that fits right in with this parable. Because this parable says Jesus will come and destroy Israel, destroy the tenant farmers, and so does Jesus in Matthew when he says, I'm going to read you one, two, three, four, five, six, seven coming verses in Matthew 24, the Olivet Discourse, which, as I said, happened this is Tuesday morning, Tuesday night, he gave this discourse to the disciples. Matthew 24, 3, as he, Jesus, sat on the Mount of Olives, the disciples came to him privately saying, tell us, when will these things be and what will be the sign of your coming? Which is exactly what Jesus has said that morning to the Pharisees. Matthew 24, 30, all the tribes of the earth or all the tribes of the land will mourn and they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. Matthew 24, 37, for as were the days of Noah, so will the coming of the Son of Man, Matthew twenty four thirty nine. And they were unaware until the flood came and swept them all away, the people in Noah's time. So will the coming of the Son of Man. So will be the coming of the Son of Man, Matthew twenty four forty two. Therefore, stay awake, for you do not know on what day your Lord is coming, Matthew twenty four forty four. Therefore, you must be ready, for the Son of Man is coming at an hour you do not expect. So Jesus is coming soon, morning or night or noon, and trumpets will shout their doom for the Jews in A.D. 30. They had 40 years to go. That's how soon it was. So now let's turn over to Matthew chapter 21, verses 33 through 46, and we will emphasize a few details, a few more details of this parable. All right, Matthew adds some details about the vineyard that the tenant farmers were managing. The vineyard, of course, is a standard symbol for Israel. The reference comes from Isaiah chapter 5, verses 1 and 2. Let me read this to you. I will sing for the one I love a song about his vineyard. My loved one has a vineyard on a fertile hillside. He dug it up and cleared it of stones and planted it with the choicest vines. He built a watchtower in it. And cut out a wine press as well. Now notice watchtower and wine press are two details that Matthew includes in the story of the parable. Then he looked, that's God, looked for a crop of good grapes, but it yielded only bad fruit. And Isaiah goes on to say that the wine, the the 
wine press was full of thorns and it was disordered and not arranged and people were trampling on it. In other words, everything's all screwed up. And uh, and and so he was going to judge those who had ruined his his vineyard. So it's very clear to what Jesus is talking here. He's ta- he's taking Isaiah and he's saying, look, God was mad at Israel in Isaiah five, and he's mad at Israel now, at the hour that I am that I am now speaking to you, Jewish leaders. Now let's go to some details. Why would a wine press be in the vineyard? Because you've got to have a place to stomp out the grapes once they're harvested. You've got to have a fence around the vineyard. That's to keep animals and bad guys out of the vineyard from stealing your grapes or from stealing the wine after it had been stomped on. You had to have a watchtower so people could sit up and see whether other people were coming to steal. Maybe other animals too, but at least other people. These rab- the rabbis said these watchtowers needed to be 15 feet high and 6 feet square, so it was fairly large. Now, these are probably just incidental details of the parable, I think. And, and the number one rule of interpreting parables is you don't try to interpret the incidental details. You just get the main point. I can tell you right now what the main point is. Jesus is saying your kingdom's going to be taken away, Jewish leaders, and going to be given to the Gentiles, and your kingdom will be destroyed. That's simple. It's easy. But Adam Clark insists on saying that the wine press stands for the temple because there's blood in the wine press, there's red juice in the wine press, and there's bloody sacrifices in the temple. I think he's gone too far with that interpretation. Let me go ahead and read what God said about, through Isaiah, what he said about the nation of Israel, his vineyard. He said, Why, when I expected a yield of good grapes, did it yield worthless grapes? Rhetorical question meaning, yes, it yielded worthless grapes. Now, I will tell you what I'm about to do to my vineyard. Vineyard, I will remove its hedge, and it will be consumed. I will tear down its wall, and it will be trampled. I will make it a wasteland. It will not be pruned or weeded. Thorns and briars will grow up. I will also give orders to the clouds that rain should not fall on it. For the vineyard of the Lord of hosts is the house of Israel and the men of Judah. The plant he delighted in. Notice the past tense. He delighted in the past end. He looked for justice but saw injustice for righteousness but heard cries of wretchedness. So you see Isaiah was clearly referring to Israel and God said he's going to judge Israel. So Jesus took that prophecy and said, see, God's going to judge you, Israel. Now, I don't know what Isaiah, I have to go back and look at that to see exactly who Isaiah was probably referring to. But it's, it's no question that when Jesus quoted Isaiah here in Mark 12 and Matthew 21 and Luke 20, by golly, he's referring to the nation of Israel that is getting ready to kill him in three days. By the way, like most parables, this parable was taken from the common life of the people from with details that they were familiar with. Large estates were often owned by absentee landlords who sent who sent representatives to the to the estate to collect the produce of the estate, and local peasants farm those estates as tenant farmers. So this was a common thing that happens. Now, I said that the killing of the slaves who were sent to the tenant farmers by the absentee landowner referred to the prophets that were killed by Israel when God sent prophets to Israel. The absentee landlords sent slaves to the vineyard keepers, and God sent prophets to Israel. There's the parallel there. Jesus later on in Matthew 23, again, this is the same day, Tuesday, he said, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, she who kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to her. How often I wanted to gather your children together as a hen gathers her chicks under her wings, yet you were not willing. She who kills the prophets 
Let's look at this killing of the prophets idea. It's everywhere in the scriptures. I just read that verse to you, Matthew 23, 37. Here's another in 1 Kings 19, 14. This is Elijah, I believe, if I remember correctly. I've been very zealous for the Lord God of hosts, he replied, but the Israelites have abandoned your covenant, torn down your altars, and killed your prophets with the sword. Jeremiah 26, 20 through 23. Another man also was prophesying in the name of Yahweh, Uriah, son of Shemaiah from Kiriath-Jerim. He prophesied against this city, against Jerusalem, and against this land, Israel, in words like those of Jeremiah. King Jehoiakim, all his warriors, and all the officials heard his words, and the king tried to put him to death. When Uriah heard, he fled in fear and went to Egypt. But King Jehoiakim sent men to Egypt. Elnathan, son of Achbor, and certain other men with him went to Egypt. They brought Uriah out of Egypt, took him to King Jehoiakim, who executed him with a sword and threw his corpse into the burial place of the common people. One more example of how the Israelite leaders killed the prophets. Nehemiah 9.26 But they were disobedient and rebelled against you, against God. They flung your law, God's law, behind their backs and killed your prophets who warned them in order to turn them back to you. They committed terrible blasphemies. So they killed prophets and they, and they blasphemed. So the Old Testament Jews in their own writing had plenty of evidence that they had killed the prophets. But, of course, the Pharisees just whitewashed the tomb of the prophets and pretended they had nothing to do with that and that their spiritual forebears had nothing to do with it, which they did. Here's another one, Second Chronicles 24:21. But they conspired against him and stoned him. This is Zechariah, son of Jehoiada, at the king's command in the courtyard of the Lord's temple. Hebrews 11:36 and others experienced mockings and scourgings as well as bonds and imprisonment. Jeremiah 20, verse 2, So Pasher had Jeremiah the prophet beaten and put him in the stocks at the upper Benjamin gate in the Lord's temple. Second Chronicles 18:23. Then Zedekiah, son of Shananiah, came up, hit Micaiah in the face, and demanded, Which way did the Spirit from the Lord leave me to speak to you? Mocking a true prophet of God. Hebrews 11:36. I just read that, excuse me. Jeremiah 37, 15. The officials were angry at Jeremiah and beat him and placed him in jail in the house of Jonathan the scribe, for he had been made into a prison. Second Chronicles 36.16 But they kept ridiculing God's messengers, despising his words, and scoffing at his prophets, until the Lord's wrath was so stirred up against his people that there was no remedy. Now it doesn't take much reading of the Old Testament to see that this is a very common attitude toward God's prophets. Despise them, mock them, beat them, and kill them, and stone them little detail that I left out when I was going through here uh, discussing uh, Mark's version of it. Mark says that the son that was sent by the absentee landowner to the tenant farmers was the the absentee landowner's beloved son. Luke says the same thing. Matthew leaves that out. Now a question arises here. The tenant farmers, when they saw the son come to collect some fruit, they said among themselves, let's kill him and take his inheritance. Well, how can, going back to the to the parable, the details of the parable, how can tenant farmers kill the son of the landowner and inherit the vineyard? It seems like the owner of the vineyard would just come in and say, okay, my son's gone, but I've, it's my vineyard. I'm going to give it to somebody else. How could the tenant farmers take the inheritance? Well, as it turns out, this is from, I think it's the NIV study Bible that pointed this out. Jewish law says that unclaimed property could be claimed by anyone. So their idea was they kill the son, and then before the landowner can get in to, to claim his property, 
because once the son was slain, the property would be unclaimed because the son would not own it. He would not be the heir anymore. The owner would not would need to come in and claim it. But before he got there to claim it, these tenant owners, farmers would be able to claim it because it would be considered unclaimed property, and so they'd be able to get it. That's a minor detail, but it's interesting from a legal standpoint. Notice how in Matthew, the tenant farmers, when they saw the sun, they said among themselves. They conspired privately, not publicly. That's exactly what's going on now. Matthew 27, verse 1, When daybreak came, all the chief priests and the elders of the people plotted against Jesus to put him to death. John 11:47 through 53, So the chief priests and the Pharisees convened the Sanhedrin and said, What are we going to do since this man does many signs? If we let him continue in this way, everyone will believe in him. Then the Romans will come and remove our place in our nation. And dropping on down to verse 53 of John 11, So from that day on they plotted to kill him. Now notice Jesus in verse 40 of Matthew 21 says, he, 40, Verse 41, He will completely destroy these terrible men. That's the, the people, the Jews, answering back to Jesus. Now this is an interesting uh, difference in the three versions of the parable. In Matthew, Jesus asked, When the owner of the vineyard comes, what will he do to those farmers? He will completely destroy those terrible men, they told him. So we have Jesus asking the tenant farmers and the tenant farmers answering. Now this shows that the religious leaders must not have realized this parable was aimed straight at them. Otherwise, they wouldn't have bothered to answer Jesus because when they answered it, they basically put the doom right on their own head. He will completely destroy those terrible men. And he will lease his vineyard to other farmers who will give him his produce at the harvest. Now, Matthew has the Jews answering that way, but Mark and Luke just has Jesus stating that. He doesn't ask the bad guys, the religious leaders. He just says, the landowner is going to destroy those people and, le and, and let it out to other husbandmen in another country, to other farmers. Other tenant farmers are going to, are going to take over. Well, let's reconcile that. This... I'm sure that Jesus asked this first. The Jews answered and said, the landowner's going to let, let the vineyard out to other tenant farmers. They answered it, and then Jesus confirmed it and said, yes, you said it right. The landowner is going to let it out to other tenant farmers. And then that's the part that Mark and Luke recorded, Jesus' confirmation of what the Jews first said. Now, another little detail here is Matthew is the only of the one of the three synoptic gospels who mentions that the men who are going to be destroyed, he said he will miserably destroy those miserable men. King James has it. Holman Christian Study Bible has terrible. I like the King James better. He will miserably destroy those miserable men. And this is spoken by, of course, the miserable men themselves as they're answering Jesus as to the interpretation of the parable. They said it themselves. Another detail in Luke here, when they heard that the vineyard was going to be taken out and let out to other farmers in Luke, they said this, but when they heard this, they said, no, never. Well, sorry, it happened 40 years, one generation later. The vineyard was taken out of Israel's hands. And notice in verse 41, and this is in Matthew, verse 41, Jesus said, or, or the, the, the religious leaders answering Jesus said, he will completely destroy those terrible men. That's exactly what happened, completely destroyed, literally fulfilled 40 years later. There wasn't a stone left on that temple, one on top of the other, when the Romans completely destroyed Jerusalem. Now let's go to 
Jesus's quotation of Psalm 118 about the chief cornerstone that's mentioned in all three of these gospels, Mark, Matthew, and Luke. Jesus said to them, have you never read in the scriptures the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone? This came from the Lord and is wonderful in your eyes. Now, Jesus is getting to be very explicit. Again, they didn't understand that parable. They wouldn't have answered the, the, Jesus' question that way. And so Jesus is just going to flat out put it to them, hit them between the eyes with it. The stone that the builders rejected. Jesus is the stone. The builders, that's the Jewish religious leaders, they rejected that stone. After they reject him, He's going to become the cornerstone. He's going to hold the whole the whole temple together, the whole building together, the whole kingdom of God together. The Jewish kingdom will be gone, and the church will be in its place, and Jesus is the cornerstone of the church. This came from the Lord is wonderful in our eyes. This, again, is easy to interpret. Cornerstone, by the way, is ambiguous. The Greek word can either mean capstone or cornerstone. You see the translations differ on how to translate that. It doesn't matter. A building needs both. It needs a cornerstone to stand up. It needs a capstone to stand up. Now, how many times is this idea in the Old Testament? It's kind of surprising. Let me read you. I've got one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine times it's mentioned in the Old Testament. The principal reference comes from Psalm 118, verses 22 through 23. The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This came from the Lord. It is wonderful in our eyes. Jesus quoted that straight. Now, originally, Adam Clark says that that psalm was originally, seems to be originally spoken of David. He was rejected, then he became the chief cornerstone of Israel. He was rejected by the Jewish leaders, of course, because, well, he was the youngest of his father's sons, and it took him a while before he took over the kingdom of Israel. He had a lot of political opposition. But at any rate, it, the, the, the final, the psalm reference might be a little bit unclear, but the final reference in the New Testament is clear who Jesus is talking about. He's talking about himself. Isaiah 28:16. Therefore the Lord said, Look, I have laid a stone in Zion, a tested stone, a precious cornerstone, a sure foundation. The one who believes will be unshakable. The one who believes in that stone. That's pretty obvious. Jesus was tested and tried by the devil, overcame it, and he was precious, of course, and he was a sure foundation. Acts 4.11, this is, I think this is, is this Peter speaking? I can't remember where this is in Acts 4.11. This Jesus is the stone rejected by you builders, which has become the cornerstone. 1 Peter 2, 4-6, coming to him a living stone rejected by men, but chosen and valuable to God precious to God. He's a precious cornerstone. He's rejected by men, chosen by God. That that theme is everywhere. You yourselves as living stones are being built into a spiritual house. Verse 6 and 1 Peter 2, for it is contained in Scripture. Look, I lay a stone in Zion, a choice and honored cornerstone, and the one who believes in him will never be put to shame. So you see how this this Psalm 118 is quoted everywhere in the in the Bible. Isaiah 8, 14. He will be a sanctuary, but for the two houses of Israel, he will be a stone to stumble over and a rock to trip over and a trap and a snare to the inhabitants of Jerusalem. Daniel 2, verse 34 through 35. As you were watching, a stone broke off without a hand touching it, struck the statue on its feet of iron and fired clay and crushed them. This is the fifth monarchy stone in the famous vision of Daniel. He's, the stone smashes the feet of iron and clay. That's the Roman Empire. As the Roman Empire dies, the pagan Roman Empire dies, and the kingdom of God takes its place. As it says in Daniel 2, verses, verse 35 at the end, But the stone that struck the statue became a great mountain and filled the whole earth. That's the kingdom of God. So the stone is, stands for Jesus or stands for his kingdom. 
Daniel 2.44, In the days of those kings, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom that will never be destroyed, and this kingdom will not be left to another people. It will crush all these kingdoms and bring them to an end, but will it itself endure forever. So there the stone is, represents the kingdom of God, which is not quite the same thing as Jesus, but Jesus is the founder of the kingdom of God, so it's close enough. Luke 2, verse 34, Then Simeon blessed them. This is when Simeon and Anna are in the courtyard of the temple when Mary came up to purify Jesus when Jesus had just been born. Then Simeon blessed them, a purifier herself, I should say, when Jesus had just been born. Then Simeon blessed them and told his mother Mary, Indeed, this child is destined to cause the fall and rise of many in Israel and to be a sign that will be opposed. In other words, he's a rejected cornerstone. He will cause the fall of many in Israel. That would be the Jewish leaders and the rise of many in Israel. That's all the Jews who believed in him. Zechariah 12:3. On that day I will make Jerusalem a heavy stone for all the peoples. All who try to lift it will injure themselves severely when all the nations of the earth gather against her. So we see we have a stone. It's solid. It's strong. It's tested. It's sure. It's a capstone. It's a cornerstone. And then it's rejected by the people who are in charge of the building. That's the Jews. And then it's a stone that becomes a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense because people stumble over it or either the stone falls on them and crushes them, as we'll see later at the end of our passage here. Matthew 21:43. Jesus explicitly says this. He says, Therefore I tell you, the kingdom of God will be taken away from you and given to a nation producing its fruit. The kingdom of God meaning the external kingdom of Israel. But actually it doesn't mean the physical kingdom. It means the administration of the spiritual kingdom of God, which the Jews were supposed to be in charge of, having received the oracles of God and all the prophets and all the writing and all the scriptures and all that. That's going to be That spiritual part or aspect of the kingdom of God is going to be taken away and given to a nation producing its fruit. Nation stands for Gentiles. So the, the Gentiles will then inherit the kingdom. And of course, the majority of the early church was Gentiles. We haven't got to the point now, Romans 11, when the Jews are grafted back in. That'll be great, great whenever that happens. I know that's controversial because people don't know exactly when the Jews are coming back in, but they are coming back in. But these particular Jews, the ones that killed Jesus and killed all the prophets that came to them, their kingdom was taken away from them. Happened in eighty seventy. Not one stone left on the on top of each other when the temple was destroyed. Now notice that the nation is going to produce the fruit of the kingdom of God. So the Gentile church is going to produce spiritual fruit. Love, joy, peace, righteousness, endurance, and the spread of the kingdom. He finishes up in verse forty four, he says, Whoever he finishes up this talk about the stone he says whoever falls on the stone will be broken to pieces but on whoever it falls it will grind him to powder and of course jesus is talking about the jewish leaders he says you got a choice you can either stumble over me and fall and burst out yourself on the rock or you can be lying on the ground just like a criminal is executed because the jews executed by stoning they would drop heavy stones over a cliff on a criminal who was at the bottom of the cliff and he says the stone falls on you, you'll be ground to powder. There's not going to be anything left of you. I mean, it's not like Jesus didn't warn these guys. They had no excuse. They were warned over and over and over again, not to mention all the miracles they saw and the total hard-hearted rejection of Jesus. There's no excuse for what they did. They deserve everything they got. Now, who was Jesus quoting here? Whoever falls in the stone will be broken to pieces. Sounds like Isaiah 8:14 through 15, which says this, he will be a sanctuary, but for the two houses of Israel, he will be a stone to stumble over and a rock to trip over and a trap and a snare to the inhabitants of Jerusalem. Many will stumble over these. They will fall and be broken. They will be snared and captured. That's the first part of falling on the stone being broken. The second part doesn't have an Old Testament 
counterpart on whoever it falls will grind him to powder, but it's quite clear what Jesus meant. Now let's finish up this first parable here, or this parable in Mark. It is the first parable. And we read in Mark 12:12, 12, they sought to lay hold on him, and they feared the multitude, for they perceived that he spoke the parable against them, and they left him and went away. I think the reason they perceived that he spoke the parable with them, if you just read Mark, it sounds like they understood it just, well, no, it, it, it well, it, it's questionable. It sounds like it perhaps that they understood the parable as soon as Jesus spoke it. But I think when you read Matthew, when they asked, when Jesus asked them the question, what does this parable mean? And they answered it, well, the, ven the tenant farmers are going to lose their kingdom. They, they wouldn't have answered that if they really understood that they were the tenant farmers who were going to lose their kingdom. So I don't think they understood it. But then when Jesus quotes these Psalm 118 about the stone being, the, the builders rejected being made head of the corner, the, the cornerstone, they understood that. So then we get down to the end of the passage here. They sought to lay hold on him. They feared the multitude, for they perceived that he spoke the parable against them, and they left him and went away. In other words, they had to conspire some more in order to try to get him, get Jesus. Now, why did they fear the multitude? Mark says is because... They perceived that he spoke the parable against them. And, of course, the multitude heard this, too. And the multitude saying, hmm, this man, he's speaking against these Jewish religious leaders. Maybe these guys are bad guys. Luke says the same thing. They tried in that very hour, Luke says, tried to lay hands on him, for they perceived that he spoke the parable against them. Matthew adds the phrase, they tried to, the Pharisees, the religious leaders tried to take hold of Jesus they feared the multitudes. Why? Because they took him for a prophet. Because the multitudes took him for a prophet. In other words, the multitudes thought Jesus was at least a prophet, if not the Messiah. And prophets have a lot of authority to religious people. And it looked like that prophet was speaking judgment, fire, and brimstone on the religious leaders. And the religious leader says, boy, if the people think that, there could be a riot here in Jerusalem. And we could lose our prophet, our place and our power. So that ends the parable of the vineyard owner and the wicked tenant farmers. And now I am returning from my splice of Mark chapter 12, 1 through 12, parable of the wicked tenant farmers. So that ends this audio concerning Luke chapter 20, verses 1 through 29, 1 through 19, excuse me. Next audio will continue in Luke chapter 20 and do at least chapter uh, verses 20 through 26 when Jesus talks about his famous saying, render unto Caesar what is Caesar's. Hope you enjoyed this audio and we'll see you next time.